What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Central Virginia Sport Performance Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jay DeMeo, and today I am elated to welcome another one of our presenters to the 2024 seminar and introduce you all to the Director of Sports Science for the University of Louisville Athletics, Dr. Ernie Reimer. Doc, stoked to welcome you to CVAPS, stoked to introduce you to everybody here. Elated to have you on the show today. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Thanks. And it's an honor to be on the show. I've followed you all for a very long time. So thank you for the invitation to be on the podcast today. And thank you for the invitation to present at the event next year. I'm super excited and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, man. You know, the we've been fortunate enough to have quite a few people uh, from Louisville in attendance as presenters people have done since some sensational work uh, fantastic talks so really stoked to have you as part of it but before we get too far into all of this today let's let the three quarters of a human being out there that doesn't know who ernie reimer is you know who you are and what you're doing and how'd you get out to louisville yeah so um I think you know my name. It's Dr. Ernie Reimer, and I'm the director of sports science here at University of Louisville. Um, I'm probably in the 21st or 22nd year of my career, if you include my internships. I started out at Northern Arizona University. That's where I got my bachelor and my master's, and that's where I got my first full-time job as an assistant strength conditioning coach. And then I bounced over to the U.S. ski team in Park City. I was there for six years. That's where I discovered sports science and then decided to make the jump just down the hill to University of Utah to recreate myself as a sports scientist after being a strength conditioning coach for about 10 years. And and I've been on that mission ever since. And then got a call from Dr. Ivy one day and uh, he just is really persistent when it comes to recruiting. And somehow I wound up out here in the country yeah but in a good part of the country where there's a lot of really good things being done and you know we were talking a little bit before um about what you guys are doing out there and some of the things that are going on now because it is we're recording this um right smack dab in the middle of august which can be a pretty hectic time when it comes to people and with sports and camps and things of that nature so what do you got cooking right now? What are you getting into now? And, and what are some of these systems you've built out that are really helping the, the young people you get to, to work with do better in their day-to-day? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Well, I think uh, August, you know, August is, is kind of the witching month for, for sport and especially like American football and things like that. So a lot of people think that, you know, one of the big reasons why we do hydration monitoring so rigorously in this month is to prevent cramps and that's false that's not the reason the reason is because we're we're kind of in that hottest most dangerous month and we have athletes outside um suddenly having a, a really high acute load and stress on their bodies and so we're really just trying to prevent um catastrophic injury um heat related injury and so a lot of august for our outdoor sports is is really dialed in on on just heat stress management and a big step with that is the hydration monitoring. So every August for well over a decade now, for I guess as as long as I've 
I've uh, been around, say, my first uh, director of sports science job at Utah. So about a decade, I guess. Uh, August is about hydration monitoring, preventing heat stress injuries. And that's the goal. Yeah. And building those things out, you know, it, the heat stress injuries, obviously, a lot of traumatic things have happened, unfortunately. But looking at hydration, I think that it's really one of the big low hanging fruits that we can help when it comes to not just physical performance, but cognitive performance in the classroom and things of that nature. And it's something that people, I think at times maybe make a little bit more complicated than needs to be with some situations when it comes to performance. It's something that whether you're a high school coach or a division three coach or a division one coach with multiple people whose first name's doctor on their staff, it's something that A, should be addressed and B, can be addressed. Yeah, it can. And, and I mean, there's definitely a lot of um, points that you hit there, but to me, to me, um, I, th I think hydration is is behavioral from day to day, and it, it's also behavioral within your activities. Like, how do you hydrate when you're when you're participating in your sport, and how do you hydrate from day to day? And re really, if you are consistently consuming fluids uh, throughout the day, you're probably going to be okay. If you are pausing and remembering to consume fluids while you're participating in sport, you're probably going to be okay. Um, there's some unique things that happen, like different electrolyte losses and, and replacement needs for some individuals. But for the most part, if you're consuming your fluids at a, a, a slow and steady rate throughout the day, then you're, you'll be fine. There, there's definitely a lot of mistakes that are made with hydration. Um, I, I would say one of them is the um, probably, especially during this time of year, a lot you, you've seen it in high school and college where there's there's a pretty heavy recommendation where you, hey here's your gallon of water and drink this whole thing in the morning before practice and stuff like that and or players lose weight during practice of any sport and it's like they have to hang around till they consume a, a certain amount of fluids and those practices most people at our level will probably say like yeah we don't do that anymore but a lot of people still do one of the problems with um, like rapid consumption of fluids is that um, it will trigger diuresis. So you'll start to urinate. And there are studies that have shown that if you drink a heavy volume of water in a short period of time, that you'll actually um, urinate more fluids than what you consumed. And so in a way, like, so when it comes going back full circle, like if hydration is, is just really about being consistent and steady through the, through your day, then uh, you know, you don't want someone to consume a copious amount of fluids in, you know, 30 minutes to an hour before going out to practice. You don't want someone consuming a large volume of fluids within 30 minutes to an hour after a practice. Because if you do that and you're already dehydrated, likely you're going to just um, excrete more and you'll your net fluid loss will say that you're even more dehydrated. So, um, so it, it doesn't really have to be that complicated. Uh, it's uh, it's actually pretty simple. And I, I think um, we monitor it so heavily at this time of year to prevent heat stress in, uh, injury, but uh, because it's super critical. Athletes, if they overheat, like they're going to be in danger and hydration helps with that. But, but I think hydration monitoring at different times of year, you can just do short studies where, hey, we let's emphasize hydration for a while, for a week or two. You can monitor it to the same degree as we do now this month. 
or um, at different times, but sometimes it's good to check in with your athletes and make sure their hydration is dialed in. But I think to constantly monitor all the time, it is probably overkill. Yeah, I think too, when you know, you're know you doing any of these situations, the big key to it, no matter what, is if it's a daily, weekly, hourly, yearly touch, it's an actionable touch. And as long as those actions continue to be at least consistent, um, you just have a better chance of everyone trusting is is that the word i want trusting it not hating you because you make them do all this crap that's not going to end up doing anything for them or at least that they don't see it yeah well that, i mean you you hit another point i mean um for me what i heard you were talking about hydration but what i heard was that when you're collecting data on athletes and you're not doing anything with that data then the athletes um, start to become annoyed. But I genuinely think that if the athletes see that the information is used to help them in some way, that they'll engage with it. And so with, with an example from hydration, like we, we, we have a monitoring strategy that allows us to look at day-to-day -day behavior, but also activity behavior. And so we could be very specific. And if we see when we collect the data, if we see that that athlete's lost too much weight from day to day over the course of a few days, um, you can usually attribute that to water losses, but that behavior is a 24 hour hydration behavior. So immediately we can have the conversation and say, Hey, like what you've done with your hydration in the last 24 hours isn't working. So can you do a better job in the next 24 hours and let's check in tomorrow. And they're like, yes, I get it. And that makes sense to them because they can recall what they did over the last day. And they're like, okay, I'm gonna do a little better job. And, and then come back and they start to dial that in. The other piece is kind of the hydration behavior in your activity and you know those pre and post weigh-ins and stuff. Like you can see those acute losses and it's like, maybe someone's doing a good job from day to day, but then they're not hydrating very well within their activity. And then now we have a conversation about what you do in the session. We're not talking about 24 hours, but it's like, hey, I can see clearly that you aren't hydrating very well in your sessions. Some other things we often see is that athletes will like show good activity, hydration behavior. And you can see that because they're they're not like cutting as much weight in a in a single practice. But then all of a sudden their behavior reverts and they start losing even more weight. And, and so you can, you can kind of call on that and say, Hey, like, you know, you were doing a really good job during this period of time, but now you, you've kind of maybe lost track of that behavior. So can you kind of recall what you were doing in there and, and then tighten that up? And if you give that feedback and it's very specific and you know where to intervene, I think the athletes respond to that really well. Yeah. And then of course, the second half of that, right. Not just making sure the athletes respond well to these ideas, but it is ensuring that you've got the coaches locked in, dialed in, bought into what you're doing as well. Without a doubt. And sometimes you need the coaches on board with some of that stuff. And sometimes the coaches fully trust you to manage those things. Uh, and so um, a lot of times what we do, like a lot of times coaches aren't even 
fully aware uh, of what we're actually doing on the ground floor to manage the health and well-being and performance of the athletes. And, and sometimes the coaches have, have to be involved. In fact, sometimes coaches have to be involved because your other health performance staff won't get on board with certain uh, interventions and things. And so um, I would say like the, the whole array is present, but if coaches trust you and they're bought into what you're doing, then you don't have to manage up to the coach and get them to buy in to what you're trying to accomplish with the other, with your colleagues, your health and performance colleagues as much. Um, if you're new or, or if it's something that's just so different that might change logistics or time on the athlete, then, you know, a lot more discussion has to happen and, and who you interact with and who you gain buy-in from, I'd say. Yeah. And I think that a lot of those things mentioned in both of those parts are situations where you trip, you fall, you stumble. You know, it, it, I think one of the things that's most intriguing about, to me, about what you're doing is you're, you're a strength coach at heart. You know, you're, you're not a guy that started as a researcher and that you've been in the, you know, in the game for, you know, 20 years plus. So we could probably both talk about movies that a lot of people that listening to this might not really understand the the power of the first time you watch back to the future um you know and why that is such a cinematic genius but you know other things that we can get into are along the way we've been able to make mistakes and trip and fall to figure these things out and that leads us right in you know here to the first of the big three here doc and i'm, I'm excited to hear some of these because i think that a guy who's been at the top level with u.s you know ski and snowboard and now as a PhD working the science end while coaching, you've been able to wear a lot of hats. You've been able to look at these aspects of sport through different lenses. So the, this is, this I'm fired up to hear. You know, when we look at the world of sport, discuss, if you may, you know, a mistake you may see in our world of performance or strength and conditioning in the States. And how do you feel like we could do things a little different to correct this issue? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to put strength coaches on blast here. I mean, um, that's not going to go very good for we sports scientists. Cause now I'm truly a recovering strength conditioning coach. Um, I say that in an endearing way, but you know, I, I think that um, maybe one way that we can improve is, is to just do a better job evaluating the work we're doing and, and evaluating in robust ways. Because, you know, I've seen this so often, so often I'm guilty of it in my own career. And I, and I think that this is where some of this comes from, but, and, and a part of it leads to my inspiration to become a sports scientist. But, you know, how do you really know that what you do actually works? How do you know that what you do is actually eliciting the outcomes that you expect? And, and so um, ever so often, I, I think that you know, every, every time you change the way you're going to train athletes, like, okay, hey, I'm going to do a new training program. I'm going to switch from what we've been doing. Now we're going to do this. Why? Because it's cool and it's exciting. Someone convince you of it. Have you ever evaluated the effectiveness of what you were doing before? 
And when you do this new training program, do you actually know that it's, it's a better way to train your athletes? Like to give a good example of what we could do more of, like take the paper that uh, Brian Mann published on the um, auto-regulated resistance training exercise. And, uh, you know, he, what he did in that, in that study, I believe that was for his dissertation is it, year one, this is how we trained our players. But in year two, we trained with a different method compare the results from the two years. And you could see that in year two, with the new method, the results were better than in year one. So it's like, okay, cool. We've evaluated. We know this is a more efficient way to, to make gains with our athletes. But, but I think ever so often, we might train our athletes in a certain way. We're going to sell that to the athlete. We're going to sell that to the coach. But that marketing or that promotion of how we train becomes truth. But, it, but it's kind of like a false truth if we haven't really evaluated the outcomes. And I've gone back and evaluated my training programs from my first job at Northern Arizona University, take the women's volleyball team. And I didn't know better then because it was just like, hey, like we start training in January and, and look, by the end, like everyone's improved. All their jump heights are improved. It's like everyone's improved two to four inches. This is awesome. And then one things, one of the things I did, yeah, you see those improvements in the short term, but I looked at those players across years and all that I actually was doing with my training program was they would drop down, they would detrain and I'd only get them back up to their ability. But across years, the athletes weren't actually like adapting in a way to be able to kind of like jump higher. And that's really important for volleyball. So I learned a lot. Now, meanwhile, now their strength was improving from year after year and body weights weren't really changing. So, so I'm like, okay. And I didn't look at this until years later. I presented on it. I presented about this at a conference. I'm like, I'm going to evaluate my my data from NAU. And it turns out that in some areas of my programming there, it was ineffective. Um, even though at the time, and and you know, I would claim how effective it was and how great of a strength coach I was, but you know, there there were faults in my program. So so I think that as a profession, we can just make sure we have more awareness about you know, just how effective is the, the intervention we're using? Like, is it truly working? Cause I, I think that that is really missing. So I would say that that would probably be a really big rock that everyone in their own discipline, whether they're a strength coach or a scientist or a dietitian or athletic trainer, um, there, there are certain outcomes that we could be tracking a little bit better. And we could track those in light of the interventions that we did and really try to understand that. In your opinion, what specific outcomes do you think would be more suitable for longitudinal track? Well, it, it depends. Um, but if uh, first and foremost, if you are a strength and conditioning coach, then probably some measure of strength, some lever, um, some some measure of conditioning. And uh, but there's obviously a lot of other ones. Um, there, there's going to be you know, what we do is not just strength and conditioning. Obviously we, we develop a comprehensive athlete. So we have to look at those KPIs and hopefully those KPIs funnel into better performance in the sport, but it's going to be everything from your, your sprint measures to your change of direction or your, your agility to your, your muscle power, different ways to measure that. Maybe it's a jump performance you're interested in. Um, there's going to be strength measures. There's going to be conditioning measures and there's different types of, of those. Um, and then maybe you're interested in things 
that aren't necessarily performance indicators, but more uh, things that could relate to injury, uh, injury risk and stuff. So it could be some mobility or some asymmetry and some things like that. But whatever those outcome measures are, um, if you're doing intervention, you want to actually see if the intervention changes those outcomes. And you want to do it, you want to know if it does it in a systematic way. I, I've seen this happen so many times. It's happened in every job I've ever had, and I'm guilty of it earlier in my career. But a lot of times we'll train everyone and maybe you make some modifications for some injuries, but you know, you train athletes in groups a lot of times in, in our setting, everyone trained and you tested everyone and you go to coach and say, Hey, Billy, look at him. He improved four inches in his vert, but for every guy who improved four inches, there's probably a guy who, who dropped down two or three inches. So like it, it, if your training program is assessing who your responders are and then who your non-responders are, but then you're not going and trying to train them so that they are responders now, then truly across the board, you have a training program that worked for some, didn't work for others, but really the net result is, is even. So is that really a, an effective training program? Um, statistically, probably not. So normally if you have a really systematic and effective intervention in anything, then most people are going to have a better outcome from that, not just some, um, and then others don't. So, so I think that uh, if it's um, if it's rehabilitation, you might be um, interested in uh, helping the athlete restore to their previous levels of physical fitness and performance, and then um, and you want to evaluate if your training program can and rehab program. I, I know I just called rehab training, but it, it is, it should be, but you, you just evaluate the outcome of your rehab program. When I return these athletes to practice for the first time, are we, how close are they to their previous levels of physical fitness and performance? And then um, another outcome would be what subsequent injuries have they suffered? So when we return athletes to sport, what is the subsequent injury rate or the re-injury rate? And when I say I use the word subsequent injury, because subsequent injuries are where you suffer a new injury that may not be the same injury, but it could be related to that previous injury. So maybe you're looking at uh, your injury rates when, of, among athletes who return, because that in my mind, if you have high re-injury rates or subsequent injury rates, then that might say we're, we're missing something in the whole rehab, return to play, return to competition, return to performance process. So um, it, it really just comes down to um, being very, very careful to understand what it is you're assessing and then capture some objective benchmarks to, to, to evaluate over time if, if that actually works or not. And I, and I think we could do a lot more of that uh, as a, an American sports performance industry. Um, we could definitely do a lot more of that. Yeah, I think that I think that's like hammer meets nail. And I think that's something where from pointing the thumb, I think I definitely could be better at when you're looking at it, you know, longitudinally over time. You know, I think utilizing our data better, whatever we are collecting to make sure that things are working is 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 really important and being able to dig deeper into what we take in, even if it's as simple when you brought up. Dr. Mann, you know, Brian wrote a great chapter and he's talked quite a bit about, you know, 
utilizing our, our testing more in a sense of, you know, it's not just your vertical. There's body weight things that you can look at in relation to it and different equations and this, that, and the third when it comes to that, your speed tests and, you know, strength indexes and yada, yada, yada. I'm not going to get too far into it. If people really want to go into it, you can find his chapter in the book and order it. It's great. Links below. But anyway, um, moving into that, though, what really happens is this is a call to all of us needing to dig deeper into what our knowledge base is and how we look at training and how we look at how we look into training. So as a guy who's been in the game for a bit and again, has worn different hats and now is looking through a different lens, what advice would you give to coaches, you know, to improve their knowledge in the lines, whether it be continuing education or, you know, what direction would you point people in to improve their vision into what we're doing and to improve the ability to enhance performance with their athletes? Yeah, for sure. Uh well, first and foremost, I think that the best continuing education is has to be relevant, right? Obviously, experience and boots on the ground, getting job experience is continuing education. I'm, I'm learning every day. So I'm going through continuing education right now. But how do you really fast track knowledge and, and everything? And I think it has to be relevant. So that's the first step. It like to give an example, since we're we're kind of it's a little bit related, but for me, looking at muscle power, there were some years in there where I really dove deep into that, and that's because I started to evaluate my training programs, and I started using force plates with the Olympic skiers for the first time around 2007 is when I started using force plates, and then I started collecting these longitudinal trends, uh, isometric testing in the force plate, and things like that. All of our alpine skiers were getting stronger year after year. Um, and they were maintaining their muscle power at best. Some of them were losing it. And I was just beating my head on the wall because I was applying, uh, I, I was applying all of the research with my training methods. And so I was like, yeah, I know how to train for power, but, but all of a sudden I recognize like, I'm not actually getting the results that I'm expecting that I think I should be getting. So now I'm I'm in, I'm I'm in, I'm diving in, I'm calling professors, I'm desperate to find some ways to improve muscle power in our athletes when we measure it like on force plates and things. And so so that having I'm giving that example because, because continuing education has to be relevant. Now, that case was I I I found out there was something in my program that didn't work. So now I'm being motivated by a mistake. My mistake was that whatever I was putting together in my concurrent training program, concurrent, because we were training all these different types of uh, adaptations at once, it wasn't eliciting what I expected. So in that case, I, I had made a mistake. Um, I couldn't overcome that. And I really dove in, in on that. Uh, so, so education has to be relevant. When it's relevant, though, the, the next question is, is like, where do you turn? And I think that that's the nature of your question. Where do you turn? For me, um, the, the best source of like true bona fide education is, is formal higher education. That to me is the best source. It, again, it has to be relevant because no one likes to go to a college class and not know why they're in there. 
And that happens a lot with our, our kids. They don't, they don't know what they want to do with their lives yet. So they're like, why do I have to go to class? But when you get older and you take a college class, it's a lot more important to you because you, you've picked it. You're just going to sacrifice your time to commit to that. So higher education to me is, is the best form. The professors, they're always up to date with the most recent research and evidence and techniques. They're, so you're going to get truly the state of our, the state of art in our knowledge base right now, because professors will always be up to date. And so I think that's the true pure form of continuing education. Now, just a call to everyone who does work for a higher, uh, an institution of higher education. I just think um, we are really missing an opportunity to continue our education when we work at an institution of higher education. So um, I just want to challenge everyone out there who's listening. If you work at a university, like take a class, you know, I'm not saying take a degree, but whatever that thing is you want to learn more about, and you're really desperate to learn more about that, maybe because you have some flaws in your training, maybe you have some personal flaws in your own leadership and your management and your, your interpersonal skills. Or on the other end, maybe you want to get somewhere with your career. Maybe you want to go somewhere with your career and your life. Take a damn class. You probably get a discount. It might be for free. At UofL, you can get six credits for free if you're an employee per semester. Take a damn class. Continue your education. You're right there with all those people. So I, I think that that, that is, is one of the best ways to do that. But one of the limitations with higher education, I think um, you might've mentioned that early, but uh, when you've been in the field and you've been working, you're applied, sometimes the things you learn in the classroom don't really match with what happens in the real world. So you have to take the things learned and then you have to apply them to the real world. Um, the other forms of continuing education, again, you've got to know what you want to learn and why. And and that's so important because learning is so much more meaningful and fulfilling and fun when you, you have a, a reason why you're learning it. But the other forms for me, um, the peer-reviewed literature is a, a very important source of, of continuing education. I do my best to try to stay up to date on the research. When I have a question about something, the first place I go is to the research. I try to look at most up-to-date first. And I consume that. I've become quite proficient in consuming the published peer-reviewed research. I do really value peer-reviewed textbooks where you have citations. It's written by an expert or a practitioner and it's cited, but it is peer-reviewed. I value that a lot. One, and then obviously, um, one of the best places for continuing education is, is your peers. If, if you've got something you want to learn about, most likely someone out there knows how to do it. It's okay that you don't know how to do something. It's just probably that maybe you haven't encountered that problem yet in your career path, but now you're encountering something that you need to learn more about. So reach out to my man, Jay, reach out to myself or call Dr. Ivy or B-Man or whoever, um, whoever you need to call to, to say, hey, like, can you teach me how you've done this? Because we're facing this challenge and we don't know how to do it. I would love if you could teach me how to do that. Now, if you call me, we're going to talk through it. I'll probably dump some research on you. Um, we'll talk through some concepts and it'll help you understand, but you're not going to get the practical without the, the research and, and the theoretical that goes with it for sure. But um, I, I think that, that that's really important. I've, I'm a sports scientist, so I value research. 
and I value higher education first and foremost. Um, also, there are certain conferences like ACSM. The reason why ACSM is in conferences like that are really valuable to me is because everything there is research. Um, ACSM, they, they have posters. They have these halls and they have all these scientific posters and there's thousands of them. And most of that research hasn't been published in the peer-reviewed literature yet. So we early on, somehow we got talking about camp and hydration, but one year I went to ACSM and I had my list. I want to learn about hydration. Then I want to learn about B, C, and D. And I'm going to just like spend the next four days at this event looking at all of this research that hasn't actually been published yet, which is being presented here. And I'm going to learn a lot about this. I'm going to stay very focused on what I'm trying to learn. And um, because I had my reasons why I wanted to learn those things. I'll tell you what, man. I love that answer because education has to be relevant is sensational. But on top of that, no one of the, however many times I've asked this question, has ever said, take a class if you work at a school. And I think that's freaking brilliant. I love it. Like, I, now, I'm sure that there's people that are saying, I'd love to take a class, but I work with 12 teams and blah, blah, blah. Listen, we all get it. All right. Like, it, it, they're, yeah, they're, so, so keep working with 12 teams. Keep running around like a chicken with its head cut off. And like, just let your experience working with 12 teams every day give you continuing education. Because I did say that experience yes. is your education. But if you want to change your stars, if you want to change what you're capable of as a professional, both on a technical and, uh, a, you know, you both your soft skills and your hard skills and like find some, some real formal education that's going to hold you accountable to learn your learning. Um, and I, I love that. I mean, like here at U of L, um, I have taken some formal education and, uh, I did that cause I have a startup company and, I, it's a software company. And so I did a startup boot camp, which was eight weeks. It was like two or three hours um, a night for eight weeks. And just to understand like how to like kind of understand the startup market and how to accelerate your product on the market and things. Right. But that was really meaningful and important to me because I have a startup company and I recognize like I might be really good as a strength conditioning coach, a sports scientist. I have all these technical skills, but my business acumen is lacking. So I need to go through that because I want my startup company to leave a legacy in this field. So I had to go through that and I gained a lot from it. Right. Yeah, dude. I love it. And again, it's some point in the thumb should have been better at, you know, should have been doing this whole time really missed the boat on a lot of those things but i, I think that's sensational advice man, uh, i've missed too many boats man <laughs> miss way too many boats yeah some good some bad but you know hopefully we don't sink too many along the way hopefully we just miss the boats and not necessarily sink the boat yeah, no doubt about it. well listen doc let me let me get you out of here with this one man the third and final and arguably the most important for the people listening what can people expect from you uh, at the seminar in, in july I think I think people are going to um, have a very engaging experience. So um, those who have seen me present with, and uh, they they know that I'm not going to stand and, and talk to you for 
an hour, most people know that uh, they're going to do most of the work. And hopefully uh, you're going to walk away with something valuable, something memorable. I can promise there will probably be some ACDC Easter eggs in there, maybe a few other types of Easter eggs and maybe a few theatrics. But um, I do I do know that it will never be passive. You're not going to sit there and listen. You won't have an opportunity to be uh, sending you know, pictures of me presenting on the social media or checking your text messages while I'm presenting like that won't happen because um, we're going to get you out of your comfort zone and, and force you to critically think about the material in a way that maybe you haven't before. Um, and if it's new material, then we're going to, we're going to force you to go beyond just understanding it, but actually really trying to think about it and take it to a, to a higher level so that when you go back to work, the following week, you might be able to actually bring that some of that stuff to your workplace. Absolutely love it, Doc. Fired up to have you aboard. Stoked to have you on the show today. Can't wait to get you into Richmond this summer, man. This is going to be a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yes, sir. And as always, thank you for everything you all do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We'll be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.